Hello, everybody. Welcome to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Um, really happy to be here this week. And we're talking to somebody who I learned about through you. Yeah. I learned I, about this person through I you. I learned about randomly on Twitter. <laughs> like, Twitter or YouTube? Twitter. Really? Yeah. I was uh, early days of rising. I was doing a monologue in the, the sort of early moments of the Democratic primary about the difference between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. And I asked on Twitter for some um, commentary from, you know, whoever, like, what are your thoughts on this? And I can't remember what he said, but he said something and I was like, that's really interesting. And then used it in the monologue, looked him up on YouTube and was like, this guy is really interesting. Let's have him on the show. What the hell? So, yeah, that's how I found him. Yeah. So he's uh, the funky academic on YouTube. His name's Irony. He's a really interesting guy. And uh, there's a lot. I mean, this is one of those people you could talk to anything about with him, you know? He would have thoughts on literally anything. Yeah, so pretty excited <laughs> for this conversation. But before we get into that, um, there's a, a poll that just came out not too long ago, and it's a YouGov economist poll. And this goes through, they asked Americans, hey, what's the most important issue to you? Yeah. And there's a couple things to take away from this, but let me run through it for everybody. So the number one issue, healthcare, mm. 20%. Hmm. Economy, 14%. Hmm. Now, this one maybe is a little bit of a shocker, but climate change, 13%. And then we have immigration at nine. And I have thoughts on why that one got that high, by the way. Taxes and spending, civil rights, and then it goes, you know, drops from there. Um, so a few things. What does it say that healthcare is the most important issue, according to Americans, and it's not even on the agenda? What does that say? Um, what does it say in the middle of a pandemic? And I do, and I did say the word middle on purpose. I'm not misspeaking. The middle of a pandemic. Yeah. I want to say the end, but half the country is fully vaccinated and the numbers are, are rising um, because of this new variant and still plenty of people who are unvaccinated. So we have a pandemic. Healthcare is the number one issue, according to Americans. And what are we getting? We're getting nothing. Uh obviously Bernie was pushing for Medicare for all. Biden was pushing for public option. Now we're getting neither Medicare for all, Medicare for all, nor public option. Maybe, maybe in the next reconciliation package, you get a little bit of, you know, some sort of expansion. They maybe Medicare at 60, but that's looking questionable. At this yeah. Moment. So it seems like more likely you get the vision, hearing and dental right. added to Medicare, which it's a crime that's not already in there, but it's not. Um, and that's significant quality of life issue for seniors. I don't want to downplay that, but it's also not anything approaching Medicare for all or even a public option. Right. Um, when I talked to Bernie, he said, we're still pushing for that 60-year-old, you know, entry point to Medicare instead of 65. So we'll see. I think you and I both are kind of skeptical that that's going to end up in there. But yeah, it says everything that in the middle of a pandemic, and not only in the middle of the pandemic, but it's not like they don't know that healthcare is an important issue to people. The entire Democratic primary was fought on the battleground of healthcare even before the pandemic. And, you know, that was like the focus of every debate had a significant healthcare focus. That was the number one issue for voters in the Democratic primary. And it was very close to the top of the list for voters in the general election. So none of this is a surprise. And yet, not only do they not do anything about it, they sort of act like to do anything about it would be unpopular. Mm. And it's the, the polar opposite. Polar of that. opposite. Absolutely. Um, 
So I'm not surprised with economy in the second position. Climate change in the third position does surprise me a little bit, but I honestly think the reason why that number moved is because of the giant uptick in extreme weather events that are happening. I think that same exact thing. Around the world. I mean, with, you know, the wildfires in California are like worse than ever. New York was blanketed for a week with smoke and haze and you couldn't see the sun for a while, all because the smoke from the fires all the way out west parked itself over New York. And by the way, I've never seen a better example of like, oh, you think this shit is like not going to impact you wherever you are in your little corner of the world? Right. Like that shit is affecting everybody. And for it to, you know, surge to the third most important issue, that might be the highest I've ever seen in my lifetime in terms of climate, right? I think it's exact. It's uh, there was suddenly just this spate of events, one after another, after another, where you see waves. Yeah. You see the record. I mean, in Canada, it's 121 degrees and a town just incinerates. Coldest place in the world's on fire right now. Siberia. Right. And then you have these The flooding in uh, Germany, Mm. horrific. London, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, and so you just and then there's there were I think there were four extreme heat waves in five weeks on the West Coast. So, yeah, you just had these events that were completely undeniable. Right. And I think that definitely was a wake up call for a lot of people. I was just looking at the, the cross tabs in terms of like who's supporting what. There are two things that were that jumped out at me as interesting. First of all, on climate, the um, the age breakdown is actually pretty interesting. So the group that is most interested in climate change as an issue is the youngest group, 18 to 29. And by the way, you should take all of these in terms of the sample size and the margin of error. And I would take it all with a little bit of a grain of salt. Then it um, drops for the next group. Then it drops again for the next oldest group. And then it ticks back up for people who are 65 plus care almost as much about climate as do the youngest demographic. So the oldest demographic and the youngest demographic, the demographic that's worried about like, is my life going to be fucked up? And the demographic that's like, what am I handing to my kids and my grandkids? I thought that was kind of an an interesting uh, insight to the, the politics there and what's playing out. Maybe they've just seen the transition more than anybody because they were alive in 1947. Right, they think back to their child like, and they're like, it wasn't like this. Yeah. Yeah, the winters were way different. The summers were way different. I mean, I feel like that over my life. Me too. Like I feel the same way. Where I yeah. grew up in Virginia, which is where I live, like I see the difference between the winters we had as a kid and the winters we have now and the summers we had as a kid and the summers we yeah. have now. It's, it's noticeable. There's no doubt about it. Yes, I I see the same thing in New York. I feel the exact same way. Um, Immigration is right under climate change. Mm -hmm. I have to say, I think the reason why immigration is even that high at 9% is because of the relentless Fox News propaganda oh, about the border, the border, 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 border crisis, border crisis, border crisis. <laughs> so I can tell you here by party ID. Oh, um, <laughs> this is, I know what this is going to sound like. Yeah. So um, or here, we'll do it by by ideology um, among liberals. Two percent. <laughs> say immigration. Oh. Among moderates, 8%. Among conservatives, 19%. Similar uh, among Democrats, 3%. Among Republicans, 17%. And by the way, that contrasts with um, health care. Hold on. Let me look at health care. There was more cross-demographic uh, support. It, there were less like jumps between the different demographic groups on saying they cared about health care. Um, you still have Democrats 
way more interested in healthcare than Republicans, but you still have 12% of Republicans saying healthcare is their number one issue. Yeah, because they have fucking medical bills. Right. Everybody has medical bills. As opposed to only 3% of Democrats who say immigration is their number one issue. So healthcare is much more sort of like bipartisan interest than immigration is one example. Only developed country in the world where people go bankrupt because of medical bills. Only developed country in the world. Only developed country in the world where up to 60,000 people die every year because they don't have health care. Well, and we only just, developed country. We in the just world. learned the medical bankruptcy and the medical debt numbers are doubled, doubled. in a couple years. W- way worse way, than we even knew. That's only in collections, which means that there's a lot of outstanding debt not in collections wow. just yet. Which will also be added to it very shortly. Should I tell my little? Yeah, oh, you absolutely story. should tell that story. This is not woe is me. This is only that, to nah, illustrate. She's underplaying it. This shit is woe is her. This is only it's to woe illustrate is anybody who how goes through this. Completely fucked up the healthcare system is. So obviously, mm-hmm. you all know, I recently left the hill. I did what many people did. I elected the Cobra. Um, I am not particularly good at like keeping my affairs in order. It's not a strength of mine. But I know that. Keeping your kids insured is important. So I actually was on top of my shit. I figured out what the premium was. A ridiculous amount of money. I paid it. I'm really lucky that that's not a problem for me to do. So I pay it. And I take my kids to the doctor. And they get their shots. Like their normal measles, mumps, and rubellas and all the stuff that they're supposed to have. And in theory, I'm covered now by Cobra. So no big deal. I get a bill in the mail just for their regular shots. $2,500. Okay? A lot of money. First of all, un, like insane that that stuff isn't free anyway, should obviously be free. It should all be free. But that, like the mandatory shots, obviously should be free. But second of all, what the hell happened? I paid that. I'm looking at my bank statement. I paid the thing. I got the thing. What's going on? I call the health insurance company. They're like, no, you don't have coverage. Well, why not? Well, we don't know. You got to talk to just some, like, they had some phone number. By the way, number. put it on fucking you. I hate that Yeah, shit. Right. I paid the shit. Like, I did. And now you're saying They're I didn't and it's you. on me? Fuck oh, off. I know, and I felt like crazy. I'm like, no, I, I swear I did it right. I really tried, like, tried to do the right thing. So then I call the person they tell me to call. She doesn't answer. I'm, like, calling her relentlessly. She doesn't answer. Then I get a notice in the mail that I don't have coverage because I owe $100. I'm like... What? Why do I owe money? I swear I did pay, did the thing, and paid the thing, and it's there on my bank statement. So there's another number on that one that I call. I mean, this at this point, I'm like three hours deep. Yeah, into mm-hmm. navigating. They just rob your time. From you. These people. I finally, through this number, get someone on the phone who was able to tell me what it looks like actually happened, which is after I elected the Cobra and paid my premium, the health insurance company jacked up the rate. $100. Without telling you. Without telling me. And so I don't have coverage for my kids and for me because they jacked up the rate and didn't tell me and then denied me coverage. So I'm like, what? How? Say the name of the company. Fuck the company. It's, Say the name of the company. United Healthcare is the company. And I mean, this is just, this is criminal. And really, it's not even worth calling them out because I'm. they all do the same. They all do That's the right. same shit. That's so right. they're not unique or special in this regard. But- I'm still in the place where Cobra has got to communicate with United Healthcare that I did pay and it might take 15 business days and then I got to go and the $2,500 for the shots, I got to resubmit that and whatever. And look, again, guys, this is not woe is me because yeah, you even in the it. worst, I, I yes. can afford it, even in the worst case scenario where they say, fuck you, you got to pay the bill, I'm fine. But 
just imagine. Somebody who can't do that. Yes. Imagine all the fucking bureaucratic bullshit, paperwork, <sighs> headache. Loss and then plus, life. <laughs> and then plus you can't afford it. Yeah, it's cr- it is crazy. And this is like, this is the most minor issue you could possibly have because this isn't life or death. My kids, thank God, are all healthy and so am I. And so that's, you know, we're all going to be fine. But what a fucked up, corrupt, insane, unconscionable evil system now, this whole thing is. You want to know what it's like in every other developed country? You go and you get your shot you and call, that's it. <laughs> hey, yeah, all right, we want a shot. Uh, Thursday the 23rd? Okay, cool. You Done. go and you get the shot, you walk out, you pay zero dollars and zero cents. Bananas. That's it. It's com- Done. Completely insane. It's fucking criminal. So. Listen, everybody understands something very basic, very simple, and I want all you to start using this terminology. Health insurance companies, for-profit health insurance companies, are unnecessary, rapacious, for-profit, mafia middlemen. All they do... All they do is make money by denying as many claims as possible. That's how they pad the bottom line. That's how they pad the bottom line and make more money the more they deny claims. The way they function is like a mafia, and they don't add any value. If anything, they restrict your freedom because they could tell you you can't go to that doctor because they're not in network because I determined they're not in network. You can't go to the doctor you want to. I know because I had that problem. There was a doctor who I liked and then had to switch companies, and I couldn't go see the fucking doctor I want to see anymore. And in in most developed countries, uh, depending on how they structure their particular universal health care system, but in most companies, you pick whatever doctor you want in most countries, and then you just go. And that's it. You don't even have to pay. Yeah. I mean, this is what is amazing. Um, if you guys watch Michael Moore's documentary, Sicko. Sicko that's a good documentary. Which is really, really great. Good one, and yeah. he frames it all as like, at the beginning, he shows all these like horrific accidents of people who don't have health insurance. He's like, this movie's not about them. This is about the people who actually have health insurance and the way that they still get fucked over by the system. That's how bad it is. Even when you are in a position, when you have health insurance, they still find every way to screw you over and deny claims and discriminate and all this stuff. And Obamacare did make some of those things marginally better, but they also injected even more money into the health insurers and made them even more powerful. We played, remember, we played that clip of Dylan Radigan losing his mind Mm -hmm. at the beginning of the Obamacare debate of like, look at these health insurer stocks. They're going through the roof because this is a giant giveaway to them. But that's essentially the system that they're really trying to lock into place. And obviously, judging by the numbers from this poll, there are quite a number of people, not just Democrats, but Republicans and independents as well, who think this whole system is fucked and that it is profoundly damaging to their lives. Yes, exactly. Um, okay, so this is another we we're talking about climate change. This is another story that I think is really important and a very scary uh, indicator of what's to come. I don't know if you guys remember this place called Lake Charles, Louisiana. And um, Trump paid a visit to it. I think Biden may have as well as part of like touting his Build Back Better stuff. He's he's at least made mention of them or did a press conference for them or something like that. So this small city in southwest Louisiana that has just been hit and hit and hit by one natural disaster after another. And I'll just read you this paragraph. American Prospect did a great long piece 
on Lake Charles deep dive that I really recommend to you all. And they say the city was decimated by Category 3 Hurricane Rita back in 2005. Then they were inundated with water during Harvey in 2017. Last summer, during the most severe Atlantic hurricane season on record, Category 4 Laura, the strongest storm to hit the state in over a century, they, that brought 150-mile-per-hour winds to the city. Category 2 Delta brought torrential rain shortly thereafter. Then... And an unusual winter deep freeze burst the pipes and cut off water supplies. And then on May 17th, up to 21 inches of rain fell in some parts of the city within just a few hours. Third wettest day in the city's history, which includes multiple landfalls of incredibly wet hurricanes. So this town has been hit and hit and hit and has just been completely decimated. And they got a little bit dribs and drabs of money. But basically, at this point, they've been kind of left for dead. I mean, the federal government has really effectively abandoned them and thrown up their hands like, "Ah, it's just too bad. So, you know, move on. And I think as natural disaster used to be a natural disaster hits you really you you see the place on tv you stick with it you think about the rebuild all the politicians come together and they get the funds there and we're going to rebuild better than ever now these disasters are coming so fast and furious one after another that you lose track of a place like lake charles louisiana the media goes away the politicians go away and the residents are left especially the the poorer working class residents are left with with moldy you know moldy floors and a collapsed roof and a ripped off front porch and absolutely nowhere to go so they're i mean i'm sure they're either at sea level or like under sea level right they're effectively at i think they're like I'll find it while you're talking. It was like 10 okay. feet above sea level. But yeah, very close to sea level. Okay. I mean, yeah, th- this is, again, this is climate change. 15 is hap- feet above sea 15 level. 15 feet above sea level. Mm-hmm. So this is happening in real time then. Climate change yeah. is happening in real time. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, hate to say it, but at some point, that's going to be a major city where something like this happens, where it gets, you know, gets hit four or five, six times or whatever in a short time, yeah. time up frame. And then the other thing is, did you see that article about how... uh I forget the name of it, but the way the moon is going to be this decade is leading to increased flooding even more. Right. Wow. And so there's a lot of places where, like, look out. Miami, Miami, New Orleans is the same thing. That's right. And And New York is not that much above sea level. New York City? I've read about how in Miami now you're just in a constant battle with the water. Well, and they say that, that might be why the building collapsed, too, is because, you know, the water's underneath the ground, and that's how you get the sinkholes. Right. Yes. That is one thing that they are um, speculating about, is that climate change may have impacted the collapse of that building. But, yeah, they're just in constant battle against water, persistent flooding all the time. Um, actually, I don't know if you guys know this. Uh, you probably don't. But this little island, Tangier Island in uh, Virginia, it's like in the Chesapeake Bay area of Virginia. And you can see it's this very unusual little sort of isolated community. You can only get to it by a ferry. But you can see there on that tiny island in real time the way that the ocean level is rising and eating that place away. I mean, it's it's going to vanish entirely and not that long. And you're, so you're already starting to have these places. There's uh, one or two that have the entire town has had to be relocated because it's just it's underwater now. It's gone. It's not livable. And somewhere like Lake Charles, 
you know, they're looking like a casualty of climate change right here in America and getting very little coverage. I'm going to say it again. It is an absolute crime that we are not prioritizing infrastructure in a way that's way above and beyond what we're talking about now. Yeah. With the reconciliation uh, package and the regular order one that they're trying to get, the bipartisan deal. Um, if we actually tried to stick by what we pretend to be about, like mm -hmm. number one in the world, most mm -hmm. powerful country, we would be trying to make the, an infrastructure in this country that's the best in the world by far, that is the envy of the world. That is like a new New Deal where we get high-speed rail going everywhere. We update all of our roads. You know, we create green and renewable technology and create a lot of jobs in the process, make our airports beautiful in the envy of the world. Like, this is something that um, it should be like a top priority, but it's not even in the conversation. I mean, we have to we have to fight and claw to get some sort of a deal that doesn't even equal what the basic upgrades would have been from 2017 numbers. Mm -hmm. So, like, this is fucking criminal. I mean, we just, we've, like, given up in many ways in this country now. Well, the other thing is, you know, they loved it with the Green New Deal or any other climate change proposal. Well, how are you going to pay for it? It's like, but see, we already have costs. I mean, the costs of not doing anything are astronomical. Look at the cost, just Lake Charles, Louisiana alone. Like, what are the costs of restoring yeah. these people's lives and rebuilding those homes and rebuilding the businesses and the roads and all of that? That's just sort of like ignored. Like, that doesn't also put put aside the morality and the humanity and the destruction of the planet and just look at dollars and cents like this is not cheap guys what we're doing right now in fact the much more it it sounds like i guess the utopian thing to some people but much more pragmatic thing is to actually do something about this while yeah. we can and i would frame it i would i would put a lot of climate stuff in it but i wouldn't even frame it on the climate stuff i would just call it like the american rejuvenation project or america number one project or some shit and make it all about like we're just going to build the most beautiful country that we could possibly build and i don't care how much it costs because we're gonna get an amazing return on investment on this shit that's yeah. the way it works with something like infrastructure and i mean compare that to bombs you build the bomb lockheed martin gets rich you drop the bomb it yeah. explodes and everybody's worse off like yeah. when you actually invest in your country in the long run that is a phenomenal return on investment and the saddest part of it all is we can't even do it in our own country nobody's even talking about it China's doing the Belt and Road Initiative and they're building infrastructure all around the fucking world now. Mm -hmm. Like it's 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 a it's a, a an evil but an evil genius type of plan to to spread their sphere of influence. And that, what if we build infrastructure for you in fucking Kandahar? It's not just to spread the uh, field of influence. It's also to be in better position to extract of natural course. resources. No, of course. It's yeah, empire I'm by new means. It's not just that it's empire. It's also empire more in the direction of the exact, like, dirty, extractive industries that we need to be getting away from. So it's like, you know, it's bad in, in many, many ways. But... I feel like this is a one of those signs of a kind of new reality where, again, it's not the natural disaster and everybody's in it and you go and you see they're on the ground in, in Houston and they see what's going on and there's funds poured in and everybody comes together and it rebuilds whatever. Now it's like, no, you're just a casualty and sorry, good luck, because we got another casualty over here that we might pay attention to for 10 minutes and then we got another one somewhere else where we're going to pay attention to for another 10 minutes. And we're all going to, you know, the Republicans don't even pretend to care. The Democrats will 
say, oh, we need a World War II mobilization and it's an existential crisis and all this. And then we'll be like, but the parliamentarians right, says yeah. we can't do anything. So what if we too only, bad. I guess what if, we'll let the world end. What if we only did one-tenth of what we originally said? <laughs> yeah. You guys happy? Take it away. It's yeah. a win. How can you not yeah. accept the win? You guys are so unreasonable. We spent yep. 17 cents on it. That's 17 cents more than the Republicans. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, um, we're very excited to talk to Ira. You can find him in the Funky Academic on YouTube. Let's take a listen to what he has to say. All right, guys, very excited to bring in uh, one of my favorites, someone who's well-known to the rising slash breaking points audience, the one and only Funky Academic himself, Ira Ose from Pong. Great to see you, Ira Thanks for having me on. This will be fun. Yes, absolutely. Usually on breaking points, we have like... We give you a timer. We're like, 15 minutes, go. And now we have a little bit more, can have a little more of an expansive conversation, which I'm looking forward to. Before I forget, just tell people where to find you, where to subscribe, because I know after they listen to you, they're going to want to do that. And also because I know that you've said all sorts of things that have made you wholly and completely unemployable. So if they want you to continue to exist, they should support you on your various platforms. Thank you. Yes, you can find me at funkyacademic.com if you like anything I say or you, you know, you appreciate me helping you not squander your life. <laughs> um, yeah, go to funkyacademic.com or just go to YouTube and put in Funky Academic and then I'll pop up. And yeah, if you could kick in 5 15 or $50 a month to help me do what I do, I think the world will be a better place. So, so yeah. Uh, let's Army, uh, let's just, talk about something meaty. Just uh, what do you, how would you describe your political philosophy and where do you think it comes from? Well, I think we need to actually secure self-determination and rights. And I think we're, in general, just a little bit confused about what freedom entails. And so we're just kind of like kind of meandering through life in a way that's um, very confusing. And then we confuse our friends and we confuse our kids and we confuse our parents. And then we stroke out and die. And that's like not the way we could and should live life. And so I think if we get clear about what freedom entails, uh, why it's important, how to secure meaning, from our lives, um, I, I, I think that would be a better world and, and, and we would do better by each other and ourselves. So a lot of people, and you know, when I talk to students, I, I, I say it clearly, our problems are kind of indeterminate insofar as we're not in chains or in shackles and we don't have something that we're exactly like wrestling against. The problem is we don't know how to like secure meaning from all of the choices and, and options before us. And so we'll end up actually doing, I worry that a lot of, like my students and a lot of people in life actually do what they set out to do and achieve success by the metrics that they set out to achieve them and then end up being miserable because their metrics were always broken to begin with. So they mm. get the suburban house and the suburban spouse and the suburban job. And then they end up why, like trying to figure out why they don't like any of it and really can't stand their kids or their parents and or their spouse or their job. And so like, how did they fail at life by achieving everything that they set out to achieve. And so I can clarify how people fail at life by achieving everything they set out to achieve. Oh, please do. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, our, our dreams are broken, right? So we think about what, what constitutes a success. What constitutes a success? And I think, um, uh, you know, people don't understand that their like, institutional participation is, is part of one of the meaning-making activities we have in life. 
So you think you're a success because you have like money or you have a good job that you hate and that kind of treats you like garbage, but they pay well. And you still don't, like I said, your kids are like scoring high on tests, but you kind of hate spending time with them. So like <laughs> you feel like I have the markers of success, but I don't really feel like anything I'm doing is particularly meaningful because most of the things you're doing aren't particularly meaningful. And there is a way in which um, we're not organizing our aspirations or our institutions in a way that secures meaning. And then you get, like like I said, you get people who either, like, I, I, I'm at the age where I'm starting to see, like, um, both my contemporaries and my contemporaries' parents realizing that they screwed up their parenting and they mm. can't quite figure out how they kind of lost <laughs> like where they screwed it up because they gave their kids the best and they just wanted them to be happy. And it turns out that that just makes them like wholly obnoxious. And, <laughs> uh, and so, uh, so I think about parenting a lot and I also have three little kids. So I think about parenting a lot too, but just in general, the institutions that kind of secure meaning in our life and what it takes to sustain them and develop them isn't something that we teach in school. Like nobody who taught you, you now you guys run a company, right? You have producers who now work for you. Am I, I'm correct, Crystal? No, we actually, we actually do our own uh, producing, <laughs> believe it or not. Well, we have the guys who are running the camera and running the boards yeah. and all that stuff, so yes. Right. So, so who taught you how to be a boss? Who taught you how to be an employer? Well, no, I'm, I'm a hashtag girl I'm, boss. I'm pulling it so out that of... that just comes naturally. I'm pulling it out of my ass. <laughs> right. right. So, like, it turns out that you talk to a lot of people and I, I went to college in Silicon Valley, like in the Bay area. And like all those people learn how to be bosses by reading a Steve jobs biography. And it turns mm. out they become assholes. Yeah. They right? sound so, terrible. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's horrible. Right. So no one actually taught you how to be an employer. Who's like actually just to think about how to se like secure labor conditions at a fair for your employer and employee. Nobody taught you that. That would, you would think that that would be an, a meaningful part of like, you know, an education as an American, especially in a capitalist society. Uh, someone would teach us how to be like a just employer, but no, like who taught you how to be in a relationship, much less a spouse, Kyle, who taught you also pulling that one out of my ass. Yeah. How's that working out? <laughs> Not too bad. <laughs> if I talk to you exes, how would that work? <laughs> no, but the idea is that, like, yeah, like, I mean, I, I, I joke around that, like, yeah, I feel kind of bad for my early girlfriends because they had a lot of work to do. Mm. So, because, uh, like, no one, taught, no one teaches you these things. So no one teaches you how to be in a relationship and actually how to share and wield power in a responsible way. Nobody teaches people how to be spouses. So nobody teaches you how to be a parent. Nobody teaches you how to be a spouse. Nobody teaches you how to be an employer. They do kind of teach you how to be an employee, but not really in a way that secures dignity. They just pretty much tell you to do what you're told. Do what yeah. you're told. Mm -hmm. That's the extent of That's that right. education. I mean, that, I mean, that, where do you where do you think that the confusion comes in? Because what you said about people do the thing that they think they're supposed to do, I really relate, and then they end up miserable. Like I really relate to that on a personal level. It took me a long time to get unconfused on that. I think Kyle had similar experience of yeah, like mm -hmm. coming out into the real world and doing all the things you're supposed to and being like, this sucks and is empty. Why do I feel like a zombie just sleep walking through the day? Where does that confusion come from? Is that rooted in basically like a corporate capitalist system that values profits and conformity and nothing else, or are there other roots to where that comes from? I mean, we have to understand that there are institutional interests that groom us to fit their interests. You were trained to like certain things that are good for possibly other interests that are not you. 
mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like, but like, and you, you see this even with teachers and students. Teachers want you to behave. They don't actually want you to, 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 to think about how to rescue meaning from your life. So you were groomed, like, insofar as I assume you got a lot of A's and, oh, yeah. and you did what you were oh, told. Yeah. You were I groomed. Pat, I was that kid for sure. Yeah. And that was good for your teachers. Was that particularly good for you? Not really. I've had to unlearn a lot of that. Still work, still work in progress, by the way. Right. So, so you have these institutions that have an interest in grooming you in a certain way to sustain them. And we got to think of institutions like um, organisms and organic logic, where they have to sustain themselves. They feed off of you in order to sustain themselves. When I talked to students, I was like, you know, your school likes you a little bit broken. Mm. Like they mm. like you to care a little bit too much about your grades. They mm. like you to care a little bit too much about your SAT scores. They want you a little bit broken. That kind of mental illness is actually good for the institution. Might not be good for your health, but um, it's it's really good for the institution. It's good for your high school. They get to tout like you're, you, you know, you're a national merit scholar or whatever. Might not be good for your sanity. You you probably should have done theater instead of taking that other AP course. But like we want you to take the AP course, not for your growth, but for us. Mm. So, um, cause it looks good on our numbers and we can attract a different kind of client and the real estate agents like it when we do that. Cause our numbers go up and the real estate houses. So like all of these other, other interests that have nothing to do with like your dignity or go into your education and your grooming. So we have to think about these institutions that kind of we participate in as also a little bit parasitic insofar as they need us to behave a certain way to sustain themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Right. So, and what does that mean? So that we need these institutions for meaning, but they need us to behave a certain way in order to sustain themselves. They, they build in their like principle of, of sustenance and development in how they like enculturate us. And so it's not, um, so, so this is why self-determination becomes important because self-determination comes through governing the institutions that then go back to affect you. So you got to so get the not institutions just in check. Asymmetrically affected by the institutions. So, okay, I got a lot out of what you just said there, and I want to run through some things, and I'm curious what your answers are to this. So, if I set up a dichotomy between individual meaning versus collective meaning. Uh, based off your commentary, I would say you fall more on the side of the spectrum of collective meaning is is better and more important than individual meaning. Correct? Yeah, I mean, indivi- I don't. You can't have an individual without right. um, being. So you can't be an individual without being a unique member of a group. What it mm. is to be an individual is to be a unique member of a group. It's like you want to be a beetle, like you're a beetle, not a beetle like John Paul and Joe. Um, you can't, there is no abstract individual without reference to a group identity or other things that are kind of like you, except different. Like there would be no Crystal Kyle and friends if there weren't also other podcasts that were different or other videos that were similar, but different. You can't just do this without reference to anything. So this idea of individual meaning um, I think it ends up being vacuous because you don't have you, you're unintelligible to yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that, that's like, an interesting you only point. Understand yourself with what you're doing as a member of a group, but you're not a member of the group like a stormtrooper. You're a member of a group. You're different than you know Jacobin and Jimmy Dore and all of that. No, you're Kyle. No, you're Crystal. But you're not completely abstract 
from like what it is to be an internet commentator about like current events. Right. So, so you are. So this idea of you can get individual meaning without reference to a group is, I think, ends up being vacuous and being and and ends up with just lonely people who aren't free as much as they're just alone and confused about how mm. they can't secure meaning from their lives. Mm. So, OK, that fascinating answer uh, to your point on education. Right. You know, I've thought about this a lot myself, that when you look at the way school functions in the U.S., you think of, OK, are they are they teaching people for practical life reasons and to like be an obedient worker to sort of go through the motions or are they teaching people are they educating people for the sake of education so in other words if you read hume or aristotle you might not get anything out of it that's relevant to your practical life if you're working on an assembly line but there's sort of education for education's sake and you're growing as a person and learning about new concepts and expanding your mind if you do that so on that spectrum between education for practical life versus education for the sake of education, would you say you're completely on the side of the spectrum of education should purely be about, you know, enriching yourself and growth and not at all about, you know, practical daily, uh, you know, get from point A to point B stuff? Yeah, I don't think, I think if you're teaching human Aristotle in a way that doesn't affect how you interact with people or understand your political responsibilities or yourself and meaning in your life, uh, then you're not doing it very well, right? So there's this idea that you can abstract education from for education's sake from like our realized interactions right and this is why we don't teach uh this and this idea that you could you could you can make that dichotomy is why we don't teach you know meaningful ways to approach marriage and different ways to approach marriage except the right does it the right is very serious about this they put it all together right so mm. their their conception of what schools should do matches what their conception of what churches should do matches what conceptions of what families should do matches what conceptions of what mm. work life should do. Right. That's why you get Chick-fil-A in a church and it, like it, it all works together in a mutually <laughs> reinforcing kind of organism. And um, I'll, I'll, I'll mention a little bit why, about how the left gets us wrong because they try to separate these things that actually belong together. But well, um, let me pause yeah. you there because I yeah. think People on the, it's funny because I see it the way you do, right? I see this very like organized machinery, a lot of money put in, a lot of interaction, a lot of strategy. And then the right tends to project onto the left that level of like cohesion and organization where it just doesn't exist at all. It's like, no, we don't have the equivalent of Alec or Coke Industries or any of this stuff. This stuff or doesn't focus it actually, on the family. Right. None of this actually exists on the left and certainly isn't coordinating together on the left. What they would say, though, is look at these woke HR departments and the New York Times and the 1619 Project. And they're using it in all these school systems. And you've got critical race theory going wild across the country. They see it very differently and feel like they are very much losing that cultural battle to not the left, but specifically to cultural liberals. Yeah, I mean, I think all of those things will end up being vacuous, right? So you take, if I were king of the world, if I controlled the left, right? Every time you start a DSA chapter, you also start a liberation theology church. 
You also start a union organizing center, a workers' mm. center. You also start uh, like kind of a, a committee that like is gearing is is gearing up people to run school board candidates. You actually do the work, and you also start like a family center because all of these things have to interact, right? Because if you have injustice in your family, it's going to screw up your political participation. If you have injustice in your work, it's going to screw up like what you can do in your family. It's, it's like all of these things kind of interact. And if you have, if you go to church every Sunday and, and like someone's telling you like the most meaningful thing in your life is to just kind of give to charity and be quiet and go meekly to work, then that's going to screw up your uh, sense of, of like, like, uh, like political responsibility. Right. And and uh, or someone's telling you that you'll get justice in the hereafter. And now you just kind of obey. That's going to screw up your <laughs> sense of political responsibility. So right now, I think liberals, liberals do control a lot of culture. The problem is liberalism is vacuous, ultimately. So it's not really. Um, uh, Can you explain it, why you view it that way? What do you how would you view liberalism and why do you think that it's vacuous? Uh, so it's that it's this worship of abstract choice. Right. Mm. Without understanding that meaning comes through institutional participation and institutional participation means like institutional constraints right? <laughs> that you don't all that you don't always choose. Like if all of your relationships are market based relationships and you just think you should be able to leave them when you don't feel a certain way, then um, oh, because you feel uncomfortable then you're going to end up surprised when you feel very anxious about all of your friendships, all of your relationships, and all of the things you like feel meaning about life. Because if everyone goes in with that sensibility, then nobody can depend on the reality and the stability of the world. Right? That's um, a great point. Right. Yeah, so, you know, when I, uh, when I talk to students about this, we're all about the same age. I remember in the time where it was possible, in the time before cell phones, where you could get stood up. Hmm. Uh, because a lot of freedom is about the ability to make plans and realize them. So you might want to make plans and realize them. And so um, I remember, I remember the first time I stood up. I was twenty. I was a young man at twenty-two, and uh, uh, I was I was in Minneapolis at the time. And I got stood up, and I was just realizing that like I feel vulnerable and like awful, and like what does that mean? Um, that uh, that I'm stood up this way because I just I just made a plan and it didn't kind of realize itself. And you would think that well. And a liberal will say, like, well, you know, your date just exercised your freedom to, to, to not show up. And I would think, yeah, but you could give me a call or something like that. Freedom can't just mean, like, doing what I want when I want to because I want to and, and, and have that be meaningful and have that be meaningful because nobody can because you can't make plans um, if every institution in your life is about uh, – people showing up when they want to because they want to and doing what they want to because they want to. For example, I had to come here, like we set up this appointment and I had to show up. What if five minutes before I, I wanted to show up, um, uh, before our appointment was supposed to happen, I just decided that I shouldn't have to show up because I wasn't in the mood. I'd rather watch Netflix. Yeah. Like, like, so how does like that differ though? How does that differ from... Um, libertarianism because that's what it sounds to me like you're describing this just like total leave it to the market and people are individuals and they should have complete free choice how is what you're describing different from that i mean libertarianism will will have some sort of a more robust understanding of property rights but it's more it's it's ultimately the it's going to be more than just property rights and this idea that you could reduce self-determination to merely property rights gets rid of institutional relations. We need to talk about what free families look like 
Oh, we need to talk about what free like churches and moral life looks like. We need to talk about what a free edu- an education for freedom looks like. We need to talk about what a free politics looks like and what are the institutional demands of those different um, kind of modes of freedom because they're all going to be slightly different. For example, uh, like I said, liberals won't have anything. They'll like not understand like the work and the institutional relationships that goes into like a family or like building a business or something like that and then be surprised when it implodes. Whereas conservatives will have bad content. <laughs> They'll have these screwed up gender relationships that like need to go away, like, like, like hierarchies and division of labor and risk that needs to go away. And so what the left can do that's opposed to liberalism is actually come down with an actual like thinking through what a division of risk and labor looks like in a household, what a division of risk and labor looks like in a business. Because, and you know, this is one thing um, like liberals in, in general don't understand about business culture is bosses actually do take on risk and they should be compensated for their risk. But since we don't talk about the division of risk in society, we just assume that like, well, labor matters and the workers get labor and they, they should get everything. But everyone knows, I mean, not everyone knows, but on a deep level, it's true that Taking on risk matters, and you should be compensated for your risk. You just shouldn't be compensated for your risk insofar as it's like asymmetrical. Thousand times the average wage or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And then find a way to use that power to get the government to backstop your risk. (laughs) Right. Yes. So that's, Um, I mean, but unless you actually talk about the fact that risk deserves compensation, you can't talk about what fair compensation looks like. So unless you actually dignify the the position of someone who actually, you know, starts a business and guarantees wages, um, you can't talk about how they figured out a way to get the government to actually subsidize their risk while you still do their work. And they just kind of skate getting you doing their work and the government to subsidize their risk and they just get paid like by everybody. Right. So you can't have that more robust conversation because we're not honest about the conversation about risk. Right. So um, and you got to talk about like these conservative so there's a kind of freedom that goes into someone else making a decision for you. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that's, yeah. So to your point on choice, Irene, right. Uh, right. I've actually seen studies on this that uh, it's counterintuitive to some extent, but if you give people fewer choices, it often makes them happier. Um, <laughs> I forget what the context of the study was. I don't know if it was like ice cream. It was or, like laundry detergent is the yeah, one I something thought like that, about where, choice to raise in a supermarket. Right. Where mm-hmm. people were actually, they tend to stress out too much when there's too many choices and they sort of feel overwhelmed. Um, and and just then a, whichever one they pick, they are more likely to doubt it because there's too many others that, oh, maybe correct, I shouldn't have gotten yeah. the tide. I don't know. And then <laughs> and I think an even better example of this is look at the choice of health insurance companies that we have in this country versus if you live in the UK and you get sick and you go to the doctor and you leave and you pay zero dollars and zero cents. There's no choice, but in a way, they're actually more free. And you would think that freedom is more closely aligned with having that ability to choose, but really you're just choosing which mafia middleman you want to rip you off. Yeah, Medicare (laughs) for all versus Medicare for those who want it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you see this, I mean, you could read studies in arranged marriages versus uh, market love marriages, and you would think that like, oh, arranged marriages were going to be awful and everyone's going to be miserable. But then you look at the numbers, and like in terms of happiness, it's like, eh, well, you know, (laughs) it depends. There are perks and minors. So like the idea that choice would solve that problem um, uh, isn't actually true, because if you're choosing between dating Chad 
Thad and Tad, it turns out that um, definitely like, go with Tad. You're gonna go with Tad. You might, yeah, you, Tad Brad, and then you add Brad, and you're like, well, you have more choices now, so you'll be happier. There's four. Now. Well, Brad's and it turns out that like more choices will probably just make you more anxious, and like you'll pick one of them, and and I, it'll be like I don't know. I guess I had choices, and I and I, but the problem was always you didn't have a fair say in the ad producing industry like mm. <laughs> like all of the ads <laughs> were 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 like similar in a way that was completely alienating to you it's like giving a vegetarian 18 choices of different kinds of meat yeah mm. <laughs> and so you have these choices but at the end you're, you're you're miserable and alienated you know i was thinking about this and you and i were talking a little offline in the context of simone biles decision to withdraw from the Olympics. And it fits in because it's very much like, you know, she did all the things she was supposed to do. She succeeded to the absolute highest level she possibly could. And she looked at it and was like, I'm not happy doing this. I'm not going to do it. I'm done here. Um, just we're actually we're recording this a little bit early. So this is like super in the news right now. And probably by the time we air, it, it'll be a few weeks in the past. But just talk about how you thought about her decision and what was maybe the most interesting to me, because at, at first I wasn't all that interested in the story. But then when I saw the insane reaction to her decision to pull out, that actually made, was more interesting to me as like, why was this so touchy for so many people? Why were they so invested in what her decision was in this discrete instance? So this is a great example where everyone got it wrong, right? So on the right, you're like, she had a duty to the, to, I think Charlie Kirk and like all these guys, she had a duty to the, to the nation, to, uh, to, to her teammates, to the U.S. gymnastics, to our legacy, right. to, uh, <laughs> to compete. Although... Have you seen women's gymnastics? Like, it's really, really dangerous. And if you're not 100% in the game, like, you could break your neck. Literally, <laughs> I, yeah. I have friends who were gymnasts uh, in college, and, and, and she told me, people think that the, the beam is the scariest, and it is scary, but the vault is terrifying. Mm. It's terrifying. And this idea that, um, this idea that, it's like benign that she should just kind of muscle through it is, is ridiculous. Cause one, it's not going to be the best for the team. And uh, two, it's actually dangerous. So you got these conservatives who say like, she should just kind of muscle through it. And what it is is to like, uh, like risk her life for a gold medal. And like, why are we so invested in her getting a gold medal? Like we have enough, like we, we have enough. Uh, and, and the Russian coach, like days before Biles pulled out, said like, you look at the American team, it's 70% Simone Biles. Mm. And first of all, Simone Biles shouldn't have to be 70% of anyone's team. So insofar as we are so invested in her, that's like on us. Mm. <laughs> uh, we need to like organize a team so it's like not 70% her and that like, you know, or, or just understand that if it's 70% one person, then that's not how to build a strange team, uh, the strongest team and maybe you deserve to get second place every now and then. Um, so the right will say like she had a responsibility. Now the liberals, I've seen this a, month, a bunch, which is just as bad saying like, well, she had to do what's best for her no matter what. And she should not have, she just has to, she, she owes nobody nothing no matter what. And that's like, that's trash too, because there are people who wanted that spot. And um, 
and and she does have a responsibility, but the responsibility isn't to me as a watcher. The responsibility is to other people on the team, right? So apparently when she talked to the other girls on the team, they were like, dude, if you're losing your place in the air, it's cool. We'll handle it. <laughs> Don't do anything stupid. <laughs> like, right. So the other people on the team, the people, the experts, the relevant people understood what's going on. And now like gymnasts are coming out of the woodwork saying like, yeah, she made the exact right decision. And anyone who doesn't understand that is, doesn't understand elite gymnastics. And you know, us lay people, we need to know our role in this in a, in a little bit. We don't know what goes into being an elite gymnast. So we should be a little bit modest about like when people go out of being an elite gymnast. It's like, um, you know, some guy, like some guy was, uh, 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 working, doing some plumbing work in my place. And I almost asked him, no, no, it was, it was computer. Some guy was, uh, I, I, I was fixing my computer. Right. And I almost wanted to ask him like, so what was wrong with it? But then I was realizing that I don't really know how these things work to begin with. So <laughs> yeah. I should just know. My role. <laughs> yeah. That's like point. Sometimes it's, I ask Kyle about golf and I'm like, I don't, I don't really understand yeah. this. So I'm, I don't really I'm like, oh, you went. So we don't understand what goes into being an Olympic gymnast. So, like, let's let the Olympic gymnasts work. And not even the coaches because, like, you know, they didn't always have the gymnasts' um, uh, best interests in mind. Yeah, not, so they're, just, they're just pedos, army. They're the just pedos. <laughs> right, right, right. So, like, you had, like, sexual predators and all that. So let's let the four young women on the floor figure this out and what ought to be done. And we just kind of enjoy what happens. Except um, it, yeah. yes. You know, Irami, I can actually, I feel like I can make a, a good case for either side of this because I do, I am sort of torn on this issue overall. Um, to play devil's advocate on the side of the conservatives here, um, Kobe Bryant put the Lakers on his back and through force of will alone with no help was able to get his team to the playoffs and then he ruptured his Achilles in a Herculean effort trying to like, fight on and get everybody uh, deeper in the playoffs. And there's so many examples of this. Michael Jordan playing through the flu when he felt like he was going to pass out. Tiger Woods winning the, the U.S. Open on a, on a ruptured Achilles, or a, I'm sorry, on a broken leg, on a broken knee. Um, Are these things good? Well, okay, so, but hold on. If you actually value the thing that you're trying to do above all else, then the answer is unequivocally yes. Because Tiger said it. He's like, I would do it again. I'd do it again if I could. Yeah, I felt the pain, but you know what? If I focused on the thing that I wanted to focus on and I really buckled down and I tried my hardest, I'm going to do it. And you know what happened? That's when a legend is really made. That's when your GOAT status is really solidified. So it gets to the is point about values. What do you value? And if you do value that more than your own physical well-being in the moment, then, I mean, there is something to be said about that in the sense that it is incredibly inspirational. Like, I look at that and I was like, fuck, I wish I had that iron will and that determination. I don't know. I feel like that's how a lot of people get CTE, right? Like, and then, and then, you know, you look at all of these, uh, uh, I, I, I know a lot of college athletes who ended up hooked on pills because they took painkillers to get over an injury and come back a little bit faster than they should have. And then they end up hooked on pills and then that screws up other aspects of their life. I, I don't know if that's like where we, Hey, look, the closest, like I was a pretty good high school athlete. Crystal was an, a legit college athlete. I want crystal. Like what's going on? 
<laughs> she she was great at well, curling, just so people know. People know I was a swimmer. Um, division one scholarship, all that. It was not Olympic level, but I was, you know, at a fairly high level of the sport. And what I was thinking about, two things. First of all, swimming is not a dangerous sport. So I think there's a, a layer here with regard to the just physical danger of gymnastics that I, you know, I can't relate to. And I really have nothing to say to speak to because as much pressure as I ever felt in swimming, there wasn't a layer of pressure that was like, and I could break my neck, you know. So that part, I just have nothing to contribute because I don't know what that's like. On the part of priorities and courage and what your values are in that moment, I Got to, I was in college. I swam my first, my freshman year, and then halfway through my sophomore year, I reassessed my priorities and I sort of realized, like, I'm not going to be an Olympic athlete. I don't like doing this anymore. Mm. And I'm spending basically my entire life <laughs> at this moment doing this, you know, two hour practice in the morning, and then you go to weights, and then you sleepwalk through your classes, and then you're back in the pool again, and then you're at a swim meet, you're living with your team. So literally everything you're doing is about that sport. I don't like this anymore, so why am I doing this? And I decided to to quit and also to transfer. I was at Clemson. I transferred to UVA because I'd be losing the scholarship, but I could go in-state, my home state of UVA, and you know it's considered a better school, and it'd be less expensive. Making that choice to quit the team at that point, it did not feel like courage, right, or grit or determination. However, as I assess my life, it was 100% the right decision. Like at that point, <laughs> to reevaluate, to not destroy my shoulders and my body any more than they already are, um, to focus on my academics and the other, the future direction of my life, like that was definitely an affirmative, affirmatively good choice. And to put your sort of like team context into perspective. And it wasn't like, you know, putting a hardship onto anyone else. The team was going to be relatively the same, whether I was there to swim the backstroke for them or not, they could give another girl that slot. So I guess I kind of thought about it in that context, because I do think there's something to what you were saying, Kyle, of for Tiger and for Kobe and these other athletes, like, they wanted to put their bodies on the line. They knew what the options were, and they're like, "I'm going to do it anyway." With Simone, you know, looked she at those. Want, right. She didn't, she want, didn't want to. And I don't blame and, her. I don't blame her for that. And her teammates were like, "We're good with that." And she wasn't going to be in a position to help them anyway. So she was probably going to make them not even get silver if she continued to compete. Was certainly the, what she was feeling in that moment. So that's how I kind of thought about it. And. Part of why I thought that there was such a wild reaction on the right, Charlie Kirk saying she was a selfish sociopath and all this stuff. I'm yeah. like, why? That was the part that was really perplexing me. Like, why are you so invested in this story? Nationalism. And I do think I, it's nationalism. It's this weird, like, macho, like, right, yeah. warrior stereotype thing. But then there's also just this discomfort of, no, no, we had a script for you. Yeah. You were supposed to go and do the thing and bring us glory sitting on our asses here at home. You're supposed to film a couple of ads and then we're pretty much done because at 24, you're over the hill. And she was like, I'm not going to follow that script. And that really, really pissed them off because people like Charlie Kirk, his whole job and career is like to uphold the status quo. And so this is threatening when you have someone who's like, you have this script for me corporate America and, you know, the powers that be, and I'm just not going to play along and I don't really care what you think. 
I'll publicly not play along. And that's, yeah, and it might be appropriate for me to publicly not play along because the script isn't for me. It's for you. So yes. there's a way in which I, and this is good because you know, I'm, I'm writing a dissertation on how, um, things that aren't related to you can be expressed as properties of you. Mm. But so Simone Biles of uh, uh, exercise and competition is somehow a property of Charlie Kirk. Mm-hmm. Like it's somehow mm-hmm. he felt it that way. Him. Yeah, right? he felt like, it that way. He felt it like she took, she ruined my chance at a gold medal. <laughs> right. She took no, he, he seemed to experience it that way. A lot of people like, did. Like it was they personal. Also, they also wanted to bash what they think. They're they're like bashing the weak left, and you know, like they have no. Uh, they have no will that they can stick to and fight through something. That's the point they think they're making. On top of the nationalism, which was real, you know. Yeah. Like, oh my God, You're America! Oh, to the country. Don't it's make like, us look bad in front of Russia. It was like Olympics. that mixed with get over your petty emotions. Yeah, he even said this was a giant gift to Russia. Yeah. Like, what are you like an MSNBC analyst? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're gonna Russia gate Simone Biles? <sighs> Go ahead, Irene. And are we in the middle of a Cold War? Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah maybe they get the, they get a cold every now and then too. Like. <laughs> It's fine. It's okay. They can win yeah. a gold medal and we can lose a gold medal. Like the Olympics are a scam too. That's a point that needs to be made is that the whole fucking thing is a scam because you got the committee which gets phenomenally wealthy off of it. And none of the athletes are fucking paid. Right. The whole thing's a scam. And then go look at the places where they had the Olympic villages previously. Yeah. They have these amazing montages on YouTube. All of them are dilapidated and broken down and they spent billions of dollars to build these fucking things, which are now an abomination when you got, you know, ghettos down the street and favelas. Is that the word favela? Yeah. Down the street. Like, come on, this is fucking bullshit. Everybody needs to know it's bullshit. Well, I think there is something. I think there is me. I enjoy watching the Olympics. I just don't think that like people should risk their life for me to get a thrill. <laughs> like if someone, like, I, I don't, I don't. I didn't, I I cheer for the U.S. I like watching our guys swim. I, I I have all these stories in my head. Like most high school athletes, I dreamed of being an Olympian. Um, but like, I don't think I'm, I I my dignity is not there. And when we talk about Tiger Woods, maybe Tiger Woods should have spent more time with his family. You know. Well, the problem, <laughs> you, know? you know, I know Tiger's biography too well. The problem is his dad spent too much time with him and posed all of his dreams onto tiger mm. right so like maybe maybe this this is a kind of idolatry that's not particularly healthy maybe no you're right you're right and actually you know to to bolster your point even more there was reporting that at the height of his powers in the middle of his prime in 2007 2008 tiger was very seriously considering leaving the pga tour to go become a navy seal because that's what he really wanted to do yeah yeah and then like took michael jordan's dad dying for him to like you know maybe that's i should right. play baseball for a while that's right you want to so, play baseball um, that's right yeah, right. like reevaluate. Like we need to foment the midlife crisis the before other, like the crisis. <laughs> the other example that uh, people on the right have been giving is Carrie Strug, who remember she's the one who did the, the incredible vault and on the broken foot or whatever, and they win the gold, and they're like, "See, that's what we're talking about." But they leave out the fact to the point of like Tiger's abusive dad. Right, mm-hmm. coach is totally abusive, Bella Caroli. So the idea yeah. that it was even her choice in a meaningful way to do that and risk her body is a fantasy young girl that she was. And then who is she brought to, to receive medical care? Fucking the Larry pedo. Nasser. The pedo dickhead. That's yeah. what we're supposed to look at and be like, that's the model of what we should right, be aspiring yeah. for our girls to do. But yeah, it was thrilling. I Break a bone and go get thrilling. fingered. Like what she, the fuck? Right. She went and go, went on the today show and all that stuff. Like, 
is that really the model of the, the you know, top level we should be aspiring to? Yeah, that's a completely distorted. It's, a, it's an ideology. It's like you're trying to groom people into worshiping a, a false god. Like we should learn priorities and and yeah, and learn priorities and dignity. So it would have been great. Um, like I, I, I've because Carrie Strzok actually came out in support of Simone Biles. Like if mm. more elite gymnasts mm, were like Simone that. should have just pushed through, um, I would be less sympathetic. But like 100% of elite gymnasts are like, yeah, <laughs> she made the right decision. You don't want to see her like come down on her head. Mm. Right. just for like you to, to get are you entertained are you entertained exactly. she does shit that i've never seen anybody do too like i think i saw her do a triple flip yeah, she does shit that no one has nobody ever, ever done. did a triple flip before <laughs> like you can't I, and then was can't punished. Do it on a trampoline. Like the judges wouldn't score her like uh, um uh, accurately for the degree of difficulty that she uh like expressed because they thought it was kind of a bad um, role model for other girls who might try it and kill themselves. Oh, really? So, like, they oh, wouldn't actually, yeah, no, they wouldn't actually give her her fair points for her skills. Because they didn't want to encourage how dangerous the skills were. That's right. interesting. So, you know, like, so she's getting punished. So, like, she doesn't owe the IOC anything. The only people she might have owed is the three other girls on the mm. team. I don't know. I oh. think she really owes Charlie Kirk an apology, personally. <laughs> he was really robbed in this whole cool situation. It, He's the victim here. They were. <laughs> it's um, totally cool with it. Yeah. Let me, so let me ask you about something else that we were talking about with regards to this, but take us in a little bit of a different direction. Because I want to hear your full thoughts on Barack Obama, his election, the way he's what his role has been in society. And the reason this relates to Simone Biles is because you and others were recalling that he was the one who called the NBA players when they were on strike, when they weren't following the pre-approved script. Um, they were on strike in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter protesters. And Barack Obama, who like barely ever deigns to get his hands dirty in anything, got right on the phone to get them back on the court. Um Talk a little bit about that and then the way that he was rewarded. But I want to know a little bit more broadly, like how you view the former president and what the ways in which he has used his power. Yeah, I think the former president is very dangerous to anybody who cares about the progressive left. I like he's young enough and vain enough. I don't think people under, under, like, understand his narcissism. He will screw up tens of millions of people so that he doesn't look bad. Because you have to understand that he spent eight years telling people that none of this stuff is possible. So mm. if people start talking about Medicare for all, people start mm. talking about a federal job guarantee, people start talking about legal care for all, people start talking about anything like a UBI, any of these things, if, if any of it actually gets talked about in public as serious, it makes him look like a do-nothing fraud who took the safe way. And he was a do-nothing fraud. I mean, Barack Obama's biggest political talent is getting Barack Obama elected. He wasn't good for the Democrats. What We lost, uh, I want to say, 1,000 state legislative 1, seats. 1,000 state legislative seats. Um, we had more Republicans-controlled more legislatures and had the trifecta in more states. Lost the House, Governor. lost the Senate, and then ultimately hand the presidency to Donald J. Trump. So there you right. go. So, so what that hap what that means is he confused so many people about what it means to be a Democrat that we lost thirteen governors' mansions. So, so that's like that's the that's those are the wages of vacuous politics. He confused so many people um, about what it means to govern that like 
you get Trump. And that's mm. what that's what you have a confused nation going to the electorate. You have someone who's actually offering you something um, in Trump, a wall or whatever, versus like Obama, who just kind of offers you pictures of Obama. Hey, Irony, uh, what do you think? Uh, I'm interested in your answer to this. Like, to some extent, don't you think all politicians who get to that level where they're that successful and, and they win the presidency? When I think of Obama, when I think of Trump, when I think of Bush, all of them seem to be better at the skill of campaigning and and branding and marketing than they were at any sort of governing. So do you think that that's just part and parcel of somebody who wins the presidency? It's like their only talent almost has to be that they're just really persuasive in front of large groups of people. I mean, uh, so there's this part in Plato's Republic where he talks about the person who kind of on the ship, you're on a ship, you set it sail. The person who kind of gets to the helm isn't necessarily the person you want to be the captain of the ship because the person Who's, who you want to be the captain of the ship is concerned with the stars and the wind and where we should go and all that. And the person who's trying to get to the helm is worried about how to get to the helm. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, that's right. Uh, so uh, there is a, there is a, there are two different skills sets at play, but I do think you can win by clarifying the fight. Mm. I do think you can win. And I think Bernie kind of did this, right? He actually became popular by clarifying what the fight is. And not just by making it about him. And that was his whole thing. Not me, us. And Brock's whole thing was me. <laughs> <We're>, <laughs> but like, his whole thing is you, all, all of your sins as Americans will be washed clean if you elect me as president. I think Michelle Obama pretty much had a, a speech that was something like everything's good in America because I made it to the White House. Mm. And like, and so well, this she idea, had the line that conservatives jumped on. Is this what you're talking about where she said this is the first time the I've first been time proud in, of America? Yeah, that might be it. Oh, yeah, because they elected me. <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. well, there was that line. But the, the, she talked about like now that she looks at her family growing up in the White House and that's how she knows she made it. There was another speech where she said something like that. And that's when I was like, you know, there are people in Alabama with hookworms. Hookworms. That's right. Yeah. Hookworms, and, and 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 they don't care if you're in the White House or not. They just want their hookworms gone, right? They want mm -hmm. sanitation and, and and pipes that work, right? So Obama is a very very dangerous man, and is going to be a very dangerous man for the next you know 40 years for our lifetime, pretty much, because his whole job is going to be in the Obama protection and legacy protection industry, mm -hmm. which is going to kind of undercut anyone who tells you that government can actually do something to secure you dignity. Mm. So um, where do you, where do you fall it's, on the, it's going to take that job very seriously. And I don't think you can't underestimate what he's willing to do to uh, undercut any future progressive campaign. So, and mm. with the NBA, let me just finish uh, talking about the NBA. So he goes to LeBron and Chris Paul and says, you know, you should just go and play. You should jump and, and, and dribble for, uh, for, for, the, for the people's pleasure. And they do. They start playing again. But then it turns out a year later, one year later, this just happened last week, so you can just Google it, Obama becomes a minority owner in NBA Africa, a new league that's starting out. Like, so they gave him a whole... The NBA gave Obama an entire com continent <laughs> like for services rendered. And people don't understand, Obama was always in it for Obama. 
in a way that was not particularly great for the public good. He even joked about it at the White House press call. Kyle, Crystal, do you remember when he said like, well, you know, I'm just trying out these jokes now so that later on when I'm out of office, I can do that at Goldman for a lot of ducats. No, no I don't. And then, I then, he, that then he proceeded to do that. Yes. <laughs> and, and then yeah. proceeded to do just that for a hundred thousand dollars, no, four hundred thousand dollars per speech. He told like, the first time he it was is, in the news was that post-presidency. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so like he told you, but I do think a lot of suburban liberals voted for him, not because of like governance, but to validate themselves. They felt good about it. They still feel good about it. It does felt, provide a value to them. Yeah, and and I was talking to this, uh, you know, kind of wealthy boomer. She was talking about her daughter works for Obama in one of his ancillary industries, and she expected me to be oppressed. And I was just thinking, well, your daughter's a hack, right? So, <laughs> and I, I don't think I said, I might have said that. I don't know. Um, so, <laughs> I, I, I do expect me to be impressed because, you know, white ladies talk to me about like their closeness to Obama. They expect me to be impressed. I'm like, oh, so your daughter's just a grifter. And, uh, and, and like her daughter's totally a grifter. So, uh, <laughs> um, so there's this idea that, the suburban liberals got what they wanted out of Obama as mm -hmm. in like a way to feel good about themselves for voting for Obama. And then Obama got what he wanted, which was like monstrously rich. But the people who actually needed good governance are still kind of, I don't know, have hookworms. <laughs> so, so, so let me ask you this though, Irami, because you're, I mean, you're making all great points. I agree with all of them, but where do you stand then on the conversation about l the lesser evil? Do you feel because I could list off Cuba, the Cuba deal, the Iran deal, um, freeing nonviolent drug offenders in his second term, which he did a lot of that, raising the um, federal minimum wage for federal workers to fifteen dollars an hour. I got a million problems with Obama, but where do you stand on the lesser evil conversation? Do you concede that or would you say, no, I actually think, you know, between the Republicans and the corporate Democrats, it's the same. No, I mean, the aim of the United States is to, to secure self-government. Everything that's not self-government is a little bit of a distraction. So the question is, are you more confused about the role of government in your life after Obama or before Obama? And that is like, if you confuse me about what my government's supposed to do, it doesn't really matter what you give me because I don't know what it's founded on. I can't actually draw any like meaning from it in a, in a way. And, you, and, and it's all unstable because like in eight years of Lyndon Trump, right? So the first all right, so the first thing you're supposed to do is push good policy that actually dem democratizes power. The second thing you're supposed to do is clarify the fight if you can't do the first thing to push good policy that actually um, democratizes power. And if you can't democratize power in a nation if you're also confusing them. So you can give them money, but then confuse them about like what their right to the money is. And, or like, and, and that's not actually um, consistent with what we're trying to do in this nation, which is self-government. And self-government's hard, right? And Obama confusing us about what self-government entails is, is I, I think, I think a, like the damage that does is, is really not, it's not negligible. But to right? push back so, to your point about, yeah, but for those people who have like parasites, all they want is to get rid of the parasites. So these abstract notions of like self-government, self-determination, well, that may be well and good. But you know what? There were, even though Obamacare was a giveaway to the health insurance industry, et cetera, et cetera, it was better than how things were before. And there were millions of people who got health insurance who didn't have it before. 
So doesn't your previous point about like, you know, they kind of just want to get rid of the parasites, doesn't that counter what you're saying about Obama's ultimate impact? That's that's a good line of argument. They don't just want to get rid of the parasites. They also want to get rid of the parasites and have like some sort of understanding that they won't come back. Right. They don't want to. So let's say like you could solve a lot of these problems with charity. But if you solve the problems with charity, do you actually solve the problem in a way that's consistent with what it is to be an American? Or do you just say that your life is a matter of our whims and charity? Right. So I don't know. Like I, I, I often do. People say, well, the founders are racist or whatever. But I often actually do think about what the founders said. Things like give me liberty or give me death. The person the purpose of America isn't necessarily like stuff and goodies or even life. It's self-governance, right? And if you get distracted from that, you'll find all of these goodies given to you by very, very dicey and dubious actors. And then you find yourself beholden and kind of like attached to these dicey, dubious actors in a way that kind of renders your life not meaningless, but like less meaningful. Um, so, Irami, so let's I, talk about freedom and liberty, because you brought right. that up a number of times, and obviously it's right. something that you think a lot about. And, you know, there are multiple conceptions here. There's the idea of negative liberty and the idea right. of positive liberty. And, you know, so a lot of conservatives say, I need to be free from the government's overreach and oppression. And so right. just I'm just going to tell you what the government cannot do to me that's negative liberty and then the idea of like hand you over to jeff bezos right well i was gonna say (laughs) but then there's this idea of positive liberty or positive rights and freedom so for example if you talk to somebody from france many of them will say no i have a right to health care even though this is something that's in the sphere of economics Mm -hmm. and you know you'd have ben shapiro would say oh you're basically making those doctors slaves (laughs) <laughs> ridiculous but but this notion of positive liberty and 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 rights and freedom um do you think that maybe we're not really free in any reasonable sense unless we have much more control over our economic life because that's effectively been the socialist argument for a long time is that you're not free are you really free if you have a boss who's effectively a tyrant or a dictator who could tell you uh what to do when to do it and you it's really have no say back shift or whatever i mean john adams said no like, like people, people, if you, uh, Adams wrote a letter and he was like, look, we can't, we have to restrict suffrage because we can't give it to employees or laborers because they're not their own people. They're just like tools of their employer. And we can't hmm. uh, let women have the vote because like they're, they don't, Tiny they're brains. not in public affairs. They're Those not in broads. public affairs because they're too busy doing housework, which is very good, but it's consumptive. And um, they, they can't actually get up on the debates because they're too busy, like doing the very important housework. So we can't give it to workers and we can't give it to um, women. So like it's just pretty much for property white guys. And so people think that that's racist, that's sexist. Or really, he's just being honest about the conditions of pit- political independence. Right. Like he's actually. What does a vote mean in Bessemer, Alabama, in the union election? Mm. Right? Were they really ind- were they really independent? So it's that they like that vote was an expression, or was that vote really just um, an expression of Amazon's will? Mm. It'd be one thing if we can legitimize the Amazon. If people don't know, Bessemer, Alabama, the Amazon factory had a union vote a while back. The pro-union forces got slaughtered. Um, um, and there was this huge anti-union campaign funded by Amazon, but there are a lot of other social factors that figured in to making the case that the workers weren't really free in or independent, um, 
to actually like voice whether they think that they should be represented by of uh, a union or they should be able to negotiate one on one with Bezos, right? So um, this idea that you can just kind of give people a ballot and they'll be free, or that you'll just kind of give people a vote in any in any kind of sphere and it'll it'll translate immediately to freedom without looking at these social factors that overdetermine their life. Yeah. Um is ridiculous. And what we did with respect to Adam's concerns is we just extended the um franchise to women but didn't change really anything about like the household division of labor and like the government's responsibility to make housework uh, less onerous. And we extended the franchise to workers without actually securing them any sort of um, economic uh, stability. So this is why we have the class profile of Congress now that we pretty much had in yeah. uh, mm. you know, no, 1776. That's really important. There's been significant progress on um, diversifying Congress in terms of identity, but in terms of class status, like actual backsliding in recent years, zero change. I mean, there was one more can of worms that I wanted to open up with you, which is something that I've been thinking a lot about, which is you'll know the numbers right off the top of your head, but I believe it is at the end of the Civil War, uh, the black percent of wealth in the country was 0.5%. Okay, right after the Civil War, right after slavery is abolished. Okay, today it's 1.5%. It tripled. So That's amazing. Progress. <laughs> But not much progress in all those many years. And that's with, you know, the civil rights era and all of that coming into play as well. What happened? Uh, we didn't have actual, we didn't have rights. We didn't actually have real substantive rights. Right, so democracy, just making people slaves, or just freeing them from slavery in a, in a kind of market-based system doesn't exactly secure them freedom, right? Because you don't have any property. That means you're working for some other your, your old boss, he's not your master now, they're just your employer, or they'll rent a land to you, but then uh, uh, you'll end up sharecropping for them, giving them your crop at the end of the, day, uh, the, end of the year. And then you don't have institutions uh, to, to, to teach you how to fight legally, and you don't have the administration of justice so that if you have institutions to teach you how to fight legally, they're going to work your way anyway. So, um, you know, Reconstruction, which was the the, the, pro, the series of programs that uh, were instituted after the Civil War, actually worked until, like, the North cut a deal with the South, Southern whites, that, like, we're not going to police you about how you're going to treat black people. And then the North kind of pulled out and everything went pretty much back to, to the antebellum period. Like people don't understand. And the pundits don't talk about black people are poor in the United States. Like it's not there isn't like, well, there's a class stratification. No, there's no real class stratification. There's like working poverty and then there's abject poverty and then there's like prison. And then there are the people you see on TV. Right. Mm -hmm. So like there there's not really there's not really a class structure. There are people with good government jobs, teachers, a handful of them. And then like those people are also related to people who are abjectly poor. I think by the numbers, it's um, uh, 30% are at the level of poverty and, and below. But I think over 50% have a household income of $50,000 or less. And that means that like you really can't sustain anything. Your people are broke, right? And that's, 
And money only makes sense in terms of other money. So you have to understand what white money looks like. So one out of every seven white households is worth a million dollars. One out of every seven, it's 15%, right? So that's pretty much everyone you see on TV. Um, like it's worth 15%, uh, 15% of white households are worth a million dollars. One out of every 45 um, black households is worth a million dollars. And if you go to California, a million dollars isn't really that much money, right? So it means like a million dollars in California means you own like one house and a Nissan means you're getting by. <laughs> yeah. Right. So that means black people in California, which means, and I say this cause I'm from California, but I can't afford to move back. I've been priced <laughs> out of my home state. I'm in Athens, Georgia where black people can live. Um, uh, and like, and, and I'm seeing my friends from California who are black move out of California too, which means black people can't afford to like move to California. Right. So that's a whole state that's like functionally like we've been priced out of hmm. and just by being black and not just. So you have individual black people who are worth money. People talk about well, Obama's worth money. Yeah. But like they're related to poverty. They're like their cousins are poor. Right. Or, or like struggling. There is no like passing around the hat. For yeah. Generational wealth. Capital. Talk right, about there's no access to like generational wealth. And like think about all the businesses that start from a mortgage or from a house or mm -hmm. like an uncle. I was talking to a venture capitalist, obviously not black, a, a real venture capitalist. He was like, you know what? Money comes from family money, right? Yeah, and generational. Or when venture capital uh, firms actually fund you, they don't fund you for the first, they don't fund you 50,000 for the first invention. They'll fund you for like the fourth thing, expecting you to fail. Well, like, there's just not that kind of community money in the black community. So real wealth isn't what's in your account. It's in the accounts of the people who are at your wedding. And yeah. black people can't even afford to get married. Right. Mm. So like, like we, it's, it's, it's to talk about wealth without actually digging into the fact of black, like community wide poverty is, and we're downwardly mobile. There was a horrible study from uh, the Brookings Institute Oh, not horrible. It's just truth about like how the the black people who are born in the middle class are actually downwardly mobile are going to get into are going to like mature into poverty. Um, the, the people who are born in the black middle class that kind of existed with government jobs in the in the 80s before, you know, a lot of those jobs were uh, gutted. Yeah. yeah. So I yeah, mean, so, two, two yeah. questions I have for you. It's related to this net worth and Crystal, you jump in if you know this. I, I remember reading the net worth numbers in, in like 2014 or 2015 and I was astonished by them. I think the average white family has like $200,000 in net worth or That's something 116. like that. And, and what's the average black family? Like $7. I, <laughs> well, medians, no, literally. Are the more, medians are actually the better, the better number. The, the median white family, that means like the middle, you throw a rock, this is what you'll hit, $116,000. Right. Um, median black family, you throw a rock in a black neighborhood, twelve hundred dollars. Twelve hundred. And these yeah. are these are numbers from Edward Wolf. Right. So twelve hundred dollars. You can't take any shocks and nobody in your community can take any shocks. That means right. you go to a church and everyone there is only worth twelve hundred dollars. So like nobody can take any shocks. And this was I, you know, this was I very clear in the governor's race in uh, the last governor's race we had, I think it was 2018, where Stacey Abrams was, had to come clean about still owing $200,000 in school, lo school loan yeah, debt. And this um, is Stacey yeah. Abrams. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. she $200,000. She's got a Yale Law degree, an economics degree, a degree from Spelman. Um, and she's still $200,000 in debt because she was helping out all of her family. 
she got a brother in jail. And then like, and then her family's like, they're kind of professionals, but she was still helping them out and ended up. Yeah. Uh, Somebody had a health care issue. Yeah. <laughs> what are the solutions, Irmy? Talk to me about solutions. Uh, well, you need universal solutions, which is what you guys like a lot. It's, it's going to be like a federal job guarantee, right? So we need to guarantee everyone who's willing to work, who everyone who wants to work a job at, I think, $25 an hour. You don't even have to worry about minimum wage if you just do that. Federal job guarantee at $25 an hour. And, uh, and then you did, it's funny because they have a program like this in India in, the rural, in, in rural India. And it turns out that this increased private sector hiring because the jobs actually like secured um, uh, uh, commerce infrastructure like roads mm. and broadband. So like more people could do business and start businesses. And That's it got people working. And getting used to working for real money. And then they had money in their pocket, right? So what you do is you secure a federal job guarantee. This guy named uh, Sandy Darity who wrote a paper saying that this is one thing that could actually go at the, the, the wealth gap. Because right now that wealth gap is so stark. It's not just a wealth gap. It's a freedom gap. If you look at all of these mayors, all of these black mayors who had to induce, endorse Bloomberg because at some point in time, Bloomberg had literally like given them cash because they didn't have cash. You just know that black people aren't free. We're not really self-determining. Like we don't control our own media. We don't like all of our media. I think BET is owned by Viacom, which I suspect isn't, doesn't have a lot of black people on their board of directors. So like, <laughs> we don't own the ideas that get fed to us. Of uh, or the pictures, the people who buy Obama do, right? And of uh, and that's that's a huge problem insofar as we're not a self-determining people. Of uh, like, Joanne Reed, well, like you just you can't if you don't control if you control people's mind, you control their behind, and that's especially important in a democracy. So the fact that black people don't actually control their media in any meaningful way. Or even control their schools in any meaningful way uh, with these white school boards like run by real estate agents like, is really not particularly uh, conducive to self-determination. So you need, I think you need, one, a federal job guarantee, which could be universal. Anybody who wants a job, you get one, $25 an hour. And anybody who thinks, well, you know, automation is going to take all those jobs. The only people who say that are white people who have never been to the rural South. Like there are so, there's like 60 years of deferred maintenance to be mm. done in the rural <laughs> South. Um, and that's just like ripping out pipes that are putting, the lead water isn't just in Flint, right? So that's right. like just ripping out pipes. And then we went through this pandemic and people in the Beltway, they might not know, oh, but Crystal, you do know, internet is not everywhere. Yes. We just went through a <laughs> pandemic where um, uh, like entire swaths of the, the nation had to send their kids to Zoom school where there was no internet. And Crystal, you know this. The assumption with the DC elite is that like, oh, well, you know, the Zoom life kind of sucks, but it's doable. Whereas like in rural America, when I say rural America, I mean like for me, it's about 20, 20, uh, 20 minutes outside of my house right now. The internet yeah. gets real dice. Probably about 15 minutes outside of your house. It's no, like, no, no, at my house. At her house. <laughs> there is... <laughs> No, literally, I've, I've satellite internet, um, which I'm, you know, lucky to have that. She doesn't have internet. Which means, yeah, you can like, sometimes you can scroll Twitter. <laughs> but, but, but you just spent a whole year where people were doing Zoom school. Not like, I don't know what you, what did, I don't, how did you guys figure that out? And then how did everyone else in your town figure that out? Yeah, so most of, I live in King George County, Virginia, and people know that as my hometown. And um most of the county has decent inter internet. I just live at like the furthest reach of what? the county. 
So our workaround was basically, I mean, they just basically didn't have like the video portion of it. It was mostly just audio for and then video would sort of like go and then freeze and then go and then freeze. So that was how we worked it out. But like, you know, know, 15 miles outside of you too, right? right, Well, and also, look, I have the ability, people are there with my kids, you know, I'm able to, to have flexibility in my schedule, whatever, like, don't cry for me and my family, we're fine. But certainly not having that access for so many regular rural people is a major, it's not just a, a, to say it's a hardship is kind of the wrong way to put it. I do think it's almost like a violation of rights at this point. It is, it is. We, I mean, now, and this is, these are the kinds of discussions we need to have about like what constitutes self-determination in a nation that just went through a pandemic and you don't have like a gigabyte of internet. Like you can't actually functionally participate in not just governance, in civil society, right? If, you're, right? if you have to be at home with your kid because Zoom school doesn't work, then you can't even have a job. And if you can't have a job, you can't really function in civil society in a way, in a meaningful way to carve that out. So like we should have immediately built out and called essential workers, like, fiber. Mm. <laughs> like, that yeah. should have right. been the plan. Like, that's right. if we're serious about securing government, if we're serious about our nation as a, like, national infrastructure, that should have been, like, all right, so we're going to end up going uh, virtual for a year or three. Um, we need to make, we need to draft as many people as are out of work. And it turns out a lot of people are out of work to put down the logistics to get everyone real internet um, and that could have been a two month project that would have actually been a like would have been like the the freeway system for Eisenhower would have started for one cause, which was like the military, but would have like actually just yielded a benefit for yeah. the rest of the nation. Yeah. You just moved me on this. I, I, I definitely don't think I was in favor of uh sort of universal internet as a human right. Oh, really? After this conversation. Yeah. You completely moved me on it. I think. I mean, it makes sense, right? Especially given the pandemic and the nature of the workplace now. Yeah. It, it is sort uh, of a human right. I've long been there, <laughs> but uh, it's also personally do? impacts me. What can you, you do without internet now? Like, like how functional can you be? Certainly can't beat off. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like, like, like what kind of civic participation can you have when like, you don't know about Bernie's campaign. <laughs> like what yeah. kind of civic- certainly can't do the jobs that we I just do go, without internet well I just go meet everybody at the box social and we <laughs> chat about it <laughs> no, no, um, nobody knows anything because there was a media blackout right Right. yeah right so mm-hmm. like you just you can't what can you do without internet and like and it's not just a right that you can't do anything you need to be able to do it on a par with other people Mm. They're like money only makes sense in terms of money, other people's money. Power only makes sense in terms of other people's power, other people's power. If everyone else has internet except you, you're screwed. Yeah. Because very like true. they'll build institutions that depend on internet and like you'll just be left out. So like when we talk about rights, we have to talk about how to equalize power. And this is like one thing I want to talk about because nobody talks about on these kind of platforms. And I have a little bit of time, so I'm just gonna go right into it. Legal care for all. Legal care for all. You haven't heard about the idea, but it's the next big civil rights platform that you haven't heard of that's just going to make sense in 30 seconds. All right. So we have a nation of laws, right? We're a nation of laws, which is great because that way I don't have to worry about like kissing some guy's butt for them to give me water or anything like that. I can just make a claim and go to a court. But we have asymmetrical access to lawyers. So we have a nation of laws, but asymmetrical access to lawyers based on how much you can pay. Yeah. Two-tiered system of justice because of that. 
And which means that you just have oligarchy laundered through the legal system. Mm. And you see this very clear in Peter Thiel. Now, Peter Thiel's a billionaire. He's a guy who founded PayPal and he's a billionaire and he took out Gawker. You guys might, you guys are in the internet scene. So you know that Peter Thiel just kind of decided that he's going to take out Gawker because Gawker outed him for some reason. And um, Peter Thiel, when interviewed, said, you know what? I, uh, I helped out Hulk Hogan take out Gawker because I don't like Gawker. And Hulk Hogan is just a single-digit millionaire. And when you're a single-digit millionaire, this is Peter Thiel's own words. When you're a single-digit millionaire, you don't really have access to the legal system. Whoa. Wow. That's crazy. Yikes. Wow. That's a quote. You can look that up. When you're a single-digit millionaire, you don't really have access to the legal So pretty much Peter Thiel is calling everyone who's not a single-digit millionaire chump. Like he could do what he wants to you when he wants to because you're just a single digit millionaire. Zed Jelani actually wrote the article so you can talk to him about about that. Yeah. So and and he's a billionaire. He's got no reason to lie. So he's telling you that if you don't have more than 10 million dollars, you can't you don't have any rights relative to me. So what we need to do is understand we're a nation of rights. We need to guarantee people access to um, lawyers and legal expertise and a commensurate to like their legal need, right? So you have people staying in marriages because they can't afford to get a divorce that they shouldn't, that are like totally unhealthy, right? You have people staying in jobs because they can't afford to uh, go uh, talk to a lawyer or they the only lawyer they could talk to will take it on contingency, which is still like the lawyer's discretion. <laughs> it's not a rights claim. It's like about how much the lawyer thinks that they can make a buck, which yeah. shouldn't be like your rights shouldn't be, shouldn't, shouldn't depend on the lawyer's risk profile, right? So you need access to a lawyer, secure access to a lawyer if we're going to be serious about being a nation of rights. And then just, um, I think it'll, that's one thing that will revolutionize America insofar as like actually securing people the rights that we're supposed to have, right? So That's you get a very good look. point. Okay. I mean, one other thing that I want to get from you that relates to all of this is, you know, we you talked about Barack Obama and how he's a danger to the progressive left. And I would say, That's you know, decades. to working class people writ large to the extent that the progressive left um, is advocating for working class people. Um And you also talked about the poverty of black people in particular in the South of America. Why is it that Bernie in either of his campaigns did not resonate at all with especially older black voters in the South? What was going on there? And, and, And on the other side, Obama continues to be very, very loved and very, very influential. Yeah. So older black voters and black voters in general, you have to understand that the racial hierarchy in the South is real. And people talking about, you know, multiracial working class coalition um, that will all come together and and white people will do um, will will all join in on these programs. Black people just don't think it's true. For example, when I talk to people, when I, when I talk to people about the the Obama um, surplus um, bill or the, even the Biden infrastructure bill, they know that all that money is going to go to white contractors who are going to to uh, to hire their nephews and their wasteful cousins, and they might and the black people be, might be able to use the goods that are constructed, but they're not actually going to make any money off of that 3.4 trillion dollars. 
uh, they're just going to be consuming off of it. And it's true because that's going to be the case, right? Because that's just the way the social systems are organized here in the South. So unless you actually are serious about, and Bernie wasn't serious about, um, going right at the systems, the social systems of the racial hierarchy, then black people just seem that like, they'll just assume that it's not going to get done anyway. <laughs> you'll talk, 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 but like none of the, none of this is going to change my life. Cause at the end it's going to be, uh, me having to deal with like a white racist and you're not going to get my back ever since, ever since the Yankees pulled out of reconstruction, um, black people have been appropriately, uh, uh, uh I don't know cynical about government coming in and actually securing their, their their dignity and rights. And we just, we know white people, right? So let's take this dream of a multiracial working class coalition. And the knock-on effects or the secondary effects of a multiracial working class coalition for black people will just be some sort, some sort of racial egalitarianism and, um, uh, and racial justice and racial equality. Right. So the idea is that, well, working class, being a worker is a big part of your identity. So if we make that equal and we fight for enough money, then um, that will lead to a greater kind of racial equality. The the problem is the knock on effects or the secondary effects of a working class coalition for the white working class. They don't think it's going to be racial equality. And the moment they find out it might be racial equality, they'll kill the coalition because it's actually they get, they like being white and, and they like having the hierarchy because we're not honest about, and I talked about this on Breaking Points a little bit, but I'll tell your audience right now, freedom, a lot of freedom isn't just about not having someone tell you what to do. It's also being above other people and having them work for you, right? Having them masticate the world and domesticate the world for you. Well, I have a boss that I don't like, but I have someone who I can exploit to cut my lawn. So, and a nanny that I don't pay as much as I should. So like my life's not so bad. Right. So that's a lot of like the, the, the suburban aspiration of mm-hmm. middle class life. Right. And when I say that middle class life is white, I mean, the middle class life is white and it's ma- it was made white, got concretized. So by the New Deal, which created like the racialized wealth um, of, uh, distributions by subsidizing suburban uh, growth. On the condition, we will give you a mortgage on the condition that no black people live in your suburb, right? So you have all of these racialized suburbs that emerge out of the FHA policy and the New Deal because they were designed to exclude black people. So now suburban wealth goes up. Uh, black people are like um, are now concentrated, concentrated in the cities in poor conditions, and they're not able to um, gain the wealth from those houses that like, you know, Hillary Clinton moved in when her parents moved it from Chicago to the suburbs. Right? But Irony, so, Irony yeah. if, what you're, if what you're saying is true, though, then the logical conclusion of that is uh, integration is a mistake and is wrong. Integration, it, well, you got to integrate into the power. The, the, the Brown, uh, Brown 1954 uh, decision integrated schools, but it didn't integrate power. It didn't integrate school boards. It actually fired a lot of black teachers and demoted a lot of black principals who now were like having a kowtow to, uh, they were now, uh, the black principals became black vice principals kowtowing to white principals and black teachers just got 
fired, like straight up fired. So and you don't you don't agree with Malcolm got, X like, then? White lady teachers, which not, might not necessarily be good for the black mind, insofar as like they were trying to figure out how to fight for justice. So you got to integrate, but because we're in a nation together, but you can't integrate on your knees and you can't expect black people to integrate on their knees, which I think tacitly is what white people kind of want. Well, I mean, I, <laughs> so, I do think that's broadly a generalization. I think there are many far right conservative white people who want that. I think there are plenty of white people who don't want that. But just to clarify, you're saying you don't believe in the old school Malcolm X idea where he said, I believe in separation, not segregation, where you peacefully separate the races. And he believed in black nationalism. That's not what you're right. in favor no, of. No, that's not what I stand because in these little black towns with those little black mayors, they have to go to state government and deal with the Klan. Right. So like you got, um, what's his name? Guy, you know who I'm talking about. Uh, give me a little more. Cut out for a second there. Who is it? Give, give uh, me a hint. Yeah. Uh, Chokla Lumumba. Ah, uh, yeah, the uh, mayor of uh, where is he? Jackson? Yeah, I think he's in. I think he's. I think he's in Jackson. Anyway, so like you could say, like, well, you can have a little black town and a little black mayor, and that's great, and he'll be progressive. That's fine. But these towns are all chartered from the state, so you got to go. He's got to go to the state legislature, and um, and 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 deal with a, a state legislature that does not care about your little black town, right? So this idea that you could separate but still be under the same kind of state governance doesn't work. What you need to do is actually we need to take over um, these public institutions of education and cultural formation, right? So I spent some time in Corvallis, Oregon, and Corvallis, Oregon is like. Oregon is a white state. It was formed as a white state in 1848 as a white state. They didn't want to deal with uh, slavery and they didn't want to deal with black people either. So they just like, we don't want slavery, but we don't want black people. So we'll just ban black people in the Constitution from ever being able to buy property. So black people were not allowed to buy property in the state of Oregon until 1926. And if you know anything about you know, the 20th century, by 1926, all the property is pretty much bought, right? So um, all the good property that you want to live on and the infrastructure is bought. So black people were functionally locked out of Oregon. And mm -hmm. so that would be, that's just history, not that big of a deal if we can redress it. The problem is you talk to the people in Oregon and they'll be like, why aren't, they? and I, I know because I've talked to people in Oregon, why aren't there black people in Oregon? They'll be like, I don't know. They just never came here. <laughs> right? So we have a public, we have a public uh, education system that's run by people who have an interest in keeping people ignorant, right? Like you yeah. were talking about in West Virginia, they don't learn about coal miner strikes no. and what, like, and how, how, how like, right? yeah. And Kentucky yeah, too, they don't like, it's, it's illegal to teach that stuff. So we need, if we're going to have a democracy and I think we should have a self-governing democracy that actually works across races, we need to actually take these cultural infrastructures seriously. Like in the United States, in the South, I think there should be museums of white terrorism. Mm. Uh, because black people here are terrified of white people. My mom still doesn't actually. She'd be horrified about what I'm saying, like to white people about white people on the radio. Because like, <laughs> like they're terrified of. White I don't think we're spokespeople for the whole race. Just to be clear, in fact, <laughs> I <certainly> think, hope <laughs> not. I think most people who share my skin color would want to stay away from me. Right. Well, well, just like you know, your own things and everything's just easier if like. If 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 I just collect the check and, and be nice and and whatever. So um so this idea that uh but white people don't know that black people are terrified of them or liberals know it but like won't admit it 
And so you have like in the South, which in Georgia is a third black, right? So in the South, you have a, a third of the state in Georgia is terrified of the other two thirds of the state or just like won't actually seriously contest them for power in any real way. Um, and nobody knows why, because we don't have museums of white terrorism mm. because we don't have like, like, and not just the lynching museum, just like low grade terrorism. There are entire towns that are underwater because there was just like a pogrom, uh, Forsyth County in Georgia, like, like the little black towns that are just underwater now because some, um, something happened and black people seem to get uppity. And so white people just wipe them out. It's not just Tulsa, um, Oklahoma, and it's not just Memphis, and it's not just New Orleans, and it's not just Wilmington. It's like the pockets everywhere of these like pogroms that happened in the early 20th century that like is in the memory of the black people who live there. But the white people just don't know. Just like the, the white people in Corvallis, Oregon, didn't know that like hmm. black people couldn't buy um uh property, property until 1926 and that means they didn't get any of the, the timber money or the mill money or any of that nike right. money so uh, so we need kind of like and we need to talk about the legacy of brown versus board of education as in how it demoted an entire class of of black teachers and how right. it functions demoted and what that means that we put all of these like white women in charge of the black mind um and that wasn't that might not be particularly good for for black students just like we need to talk about this pandemic and how this pandemic functionally demoted an entire mass of women um who are now trying to get back into the job market in weird ways like i don't you guys have did you see this in your life or is this just like what i saw no um, that's I mean, the numbers definitely back you up, no doubt about it, because women were the one we may wish or imagine that housework was split, but women were the ones who took the time off work to be there and do Zoom school and take that on. And if mom and dad were both working in the home, it was mom who deferred to dad in terms of making sure he did his important meetings. And all of that is very, very real. Um, Ira, I mean, we could talk to you for like forever, I think, literally, and continue to pull these threads. But... Um, I think we'll have to save the rest of that for another day. So it's always great to see you, my friend. Thank you so much for making us think harder about all of this. Yeah, thanks for having me on. This is who, uh, this is great. And I, I do think if any of your listeners like what I'm saying, go to funkyacademic.com. I come out with a show every Friday and I talk about just different issues. Um, and this, tomorrow's show is going to be on constitutions and why we need to think about amending the constitution. Not a constitutional convention. We just need to be open about the constitutional amendment process because there are little things like, you know, economic rights and family rights and legal rights that uh, aren't going away and are going to always frustrate our ability to be self-determining in this nation. And we need to think about like how we just need to amend the constitution because the judiciary is not going to save us. And by the time this posts, that will be up on your channel. So guys, go check it out. Irami, thank you so much. Thanks, Army. Thank Appreciate you for it. having me. All right. So that was Irami, funky academic. Whoa, really interesting guy. Uh, definitely could have kept talking to him. Um, you know, usually when I hear people talk, there's like, uh, I can sort of surmise their political philosophy within mm. a 20-minute period. Yeah. But with him, I'm like, I have no idea what your philosophy is. <laughs> he Well, he doesn't fit neatly in one of the obvious buckets. Oh, there's no way. There's nothing. I mean, that's what I always 
um, appreciate appreciate about Iron Me, and you guys know I'm on breaking point sometimes, and I talk to him a lot offline. He's always giving me little ideas, and I reference mm-hmm. him in my monologues and stuff sometimes too, because he's kind of thinking it all through for himself step by step. And so oftentimes he'll have a different perspective or a different take than what you hear anywhere else. Like I thought the way he thought through the Simone Biles um, controversy, quote unquote, was interesting and different than how anybody else did. Because you had this very knee jerk on the right. They're like, she had full but she let me down and she let the country down. And that's, you know, she had all these responsibilities. And the liberal response was like, no, she didn't have any responsibilities. Her only responsibility was to do what was right for her. And in they that called moment. it courageous. Oh, it was courageous. Courageous. And she Brave. did what was right for her. And that's all that really mm-hmm. mattered. He's like, eh, that's not really true. And it's not actually the way that we all live, unless you are kind of a neither like, thing is true. Is sociopath that yeah. doesn't care at all what your rights and responsibilities are in any given situation. Like, that isn't actually the way that people think about the world. So, That's a good example of how he has a sort of firm philosophy and set of values and has a way of thinking about these things in a very clear way that tends to set him apart from either, like, dogmatic view. One area where I wish we had more time to dive further into it was when he talked about the multiracial working class. Yes. And I I asked—I tried to get him to clarify, and he did— um, but he sort of made it seem like he feels like it's impossible. Yes. You know? Yeah. And this but then, but he didn't at the same time because he said, no, I don't want black nationalism and separatism. Mm-hmm. So it's like, if you don't want that and you think the multiracial working class is impossible, then are you just a nihilist and a doomer and like nothing's ever going to work? Is that the argument? I right. Don't know. I'm not, I don't have clarity there either. Yeah. And it is an area where he and I have gone back and forth a little bit on this as well. And I think he has... I don't want to mischaracterize his philosophy, but I would say in general he has a dimmer view of human nature maybe than I do and certainly is less optimistic about the possibility of a multiracial working class doing anything meaningful together. And, I mean, you see in union context, and I think this is part of what's important actually, is in union context you do see a multiracial working class working together in solidarity fairly regularly. And I think what he would say is that's because you have an institution in place that makes that collaboration possible. And so you need to have those institutions in place where before you can expect such a thing to work out um, writ large at a national scale would be my guess. I'm but I'm curious, purely just guessing right now. I'm curious if he thinks that racism is innate or learned. I'm curious what he'd say to that. Um, because I'm very hard on the side of I think it's learned. I think racism is learned. I mm. think your default natural setting when you come out, if nobody tells you what you should or shouldn't think on the issue, you just look around and you see people. And yeah. in the same way that, you know, you see uh, men and women, you see people of all different, uh, you know, skin tones and ethnicities and races, you don't think anything of it. You just think, oh, that's a person, you know? So if that is the case, then our natural setting would be the not racist one, and it's society that sort of indoctrinates mm-hmm. that in us to one extent or another. And if you look at the South, I feel like that's a great example mm-hmm. of it was the systems and it was, you know, that perpetuated the scourge of racism. Whereas if you raise somebody in the context where you don't have that, yeah, the natural setting's gonna be like, 
know what you're talking about. Like that everything we all get along and we all work together and and my that would be the case. view, I think, is a little bit different. What I would add on to that is, yes, I mean, you see the way, like, my kids, when they're little or anybody's kids, you know, they comment on differences in appearances or whatever, but there's nothing behind it other than just, like, noting, like, oh, that person looks a little different from yeah. me or whatever, right? Um, so I don't think that racism is innate. However, I do think that an instinct towards tribalism is kind of innate to human nature. I mean, if you look throughout but human if the tribe history, is people, this sense of like, these are my people and those are the outsiders that has existed throughout human history. So I think it's easy for racism to emerge okay. because of that sort of like innate tribalism that you have to fight against. You take a child and you have somebody of a different race who's American, mm-hmm. speaks the same language, has similar cultural interests. You show that child the person of another race who's an American, and then you show that child somebody who speaks a different language or speaks very broken English, but is the same skin tone as them. Yeah. Which one are they going to feel like they're, there's more of a tribalism effect where mm-hmm. I don't want, uh, you know, I'd rather be with this person than that person? Yeah. Who well, would they, I'm, ask, I'm asking you the question. I think it... It depends a little bit on the age, frankly, because really? you're talking, yeah, I mean, there's an age at which you're just going off of like appearances where you don't even have that firm of a grasp on language. But I think clearly, I mean, obviously race is a social construct. The, our definition of whiteness has changed over time. So obviously the way that we have defined the races and the way that we have taught children to interact racially like those are things that are socially constructed there's no doubt about that to answer my own question i think 10 out of 10 times or 9 out of 10 times the person is going to feel more of an affinity and a connectedness with the person who's a a a different race but has the same um language similar cultural stuff Mm -hmm. versus somebody who's either speaking a different language or has very broken english who happens to be the same skin Mm -hmm. tone you know what i mean so Well, yeah, and I mean, you see instances, too, um, you know, think about Rwanda and the genocide there between two people who, you know, two tribal groups. That had to be taught. Had to be taught. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because you— Put in their head repeatedly. There was the hate radio stations that repeatedly preached the hate. very similar, you know, very similar, like, genetic makeup or whatever, and yet taught— that right. these people are evil and they're, you know, they're the outsiders and they're different from us. I guess my point is, I also think to some extent tribalism is innate. I just think that the things that that people left on their own, what they'd base the tribalism off of wouldn't be race unless it's, you know, put in their head. You know what I mean? I think it could be anything. You know, it's like, I, yeah, it it's can like the be doctor anything, Seuss, but it's all about like, taught. If, are they taught that or not? Right. It's like the Dr. Seuss, like the star bellied sneeches thing. Have you, do you remember that? Book? Yeah. I was just reading my Dr. Seuss last <laughs> night. Fuck. Do I know Dr. Seuss? You don't remember no. this book from when you were a kid? No. We did a book. Anyway. I don't remember There's what I group. ate for breakfast. They're both the same little furry creature. And one group starts getting stars on their belly. And then they decide that they hate each other. And like the st- whether you have a star or not becomes the dividing line mm-hmm. in, the, in the society. Yeah, it's like it's arbitrary. It's like the, the dividing lines here are different than they are in other places. It means different yeah. things. All of that, of course. It's, and as I was saying before, I mean, even which groups like wasn't that long ago, your people coming over from Italy wouldn't have been considered white. Hey. Right. So <laughs> Listen here. All right. Mm. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm going to consult the Italian-American Joe Association Biden and I'm going to protest. still <laughs> thinks he's a trailblazer for marrying an Italian. Remember when Alyssa Milano was like, our first Italian-American first lady in the White House? Anyway, um, so our definitions of these things are not even static. They change over time. Um, so that shows you, yes, it's arbitrary, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't have very real obvious no, I'm not consequences. Saying, okay, yeah. let me just be clear. Yeah. Because obviously people might be interpreting this very different from what I'm trying to say. I'm not denying that it has yeah, very course. real impacts. I'm not. just saying that I guess my view of human nature is a lot more optimistic. Uh, and if if he were to agree with me that racism is more learned, then you would actually have an optimistic uh, feeling about we can build a multiracial working class. And in fact, that would be the default unless the racism is taught. Right. Well, this is something else I've been thinking about. I mean, that that tribalism and that instinct towards tribalism, I do think is is real. And there's a difference between saying that there's a natural human like innate instinct or tendency or whatever, and then just accepting in this fatalistic way that it has to be yeah. that way. But um, I also see the way that those divisions have been weaponized and exploited to maintain, you know, any powers, the status well, that, quo that benefits any power. I was thinking about this point, in the context yeah. of like, sometimes it's easier to see these dynamics when you look at a different society, because we're also like deep in the weeds of U.S. society. Um, but there was a group of fisherwomen in Nigeria whose fishing camps were completely decimated by, I think it was Chevron. Sorry, Exxon or Chevron or whoever, if I got it wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was Chevron. And they staged this incredible protest, went and camped outside of Chevron's building and were not leaving until they got some answers about this oil spill. Because basically the oil company had pulled out, but they left this infrastructure, this massive leak, destroying their way of life, destroying their living, all of that stuff. They're successful. They win the uh, acknowledgement of the oil company, and they're like, we're going to have a commission. We're going to fix it. We're going to figure out what's going wrong. And then what do they do? And this was all written up in the New York Times. They go to the two local rival tribal groups, and they say, we're going to put you both on the commission and intentionally sort of stoke um, division and drama between these two groups that are already at each like not happy Dividing with each conquers, other. It's the oldest trick in the book. And then Chevron gets to go and be like, we wanted to do your commission, but y'all just can't agree. So we're not going to go and do it. And I just think that's a perfect parable of the way that these sectarian divides, however they're, you know, whether it's an American context or another context, are oftentimes weaponized and used to guarantee that the multiracial working class never, ever happens, well, see, that you don't see that as your identity. And because if you did, then you would have actual real power and that'd be a problem. This is uh, that you're now you're making my exact point. Yeah. Because, yes, it had to. It's being cynically weaponized. And if people catch on to the fact that it's being cynically weaponized and if they're and if people aren't taught racism from when they're young, then. Yeah, as soon as people realize that is uh, when you talk about billionaires, you talk about giant corporations, you talk about the wealthy, the oldest trick in the book is to take people with no money and no power and pit them against each other mm -hmm. as you run out the back door with all the fucking money. Yep. And so as soon as people catch on to that, um, then, you know, you, you realize, oh, we're being played. And again, that that is not it's not the 
state of nature that you're going to be sectarian or tribal and everybody's going to hate everybody. In fact, I would argue the opposite. And if you do find yourself hating somebody who also doesn't have any money or any power, you got to think about how you got there and maybe who was pulling the strings and, you know, how did you end up at that position? Because if you're, if you got your wits about you and you're thinking through it, you shouldn't be doing that. And divide and conquer is the oldest trick in the book for a reason. Yeah. Because unfortunately it works a lot of the time. It works. Well, sounds like we need to have Irony back for another two-hour conversation because we have a lot more ground that we could definitely cover with him. Guys, for real, go subscribe to Iramis. Um, He's on YouTube. He's the funky academic. He's so interesting. He always makes me think, even when I disagree with him, he's got his Patreon stuff there. I'm not kidding when I say, like, he says, he really says, puts it out there. And, you know, it could very well, and he says this all the time, too, be a problem for him in terms of being employable. Um, So make sure if you appreciate him and you're able to show your support for him. Also, make sure that if you appreciate what we're doing here, which is completely corporate ad-free. We will never take any dollar from an advertiser. It's all 100% viewer-funded. So if you appreciate what we're doing here as well, go and subscribe, $5 a month, and um, you get the video, you get it a day early, um, and you get a little bit of extra newsletter commentary from The Great Piper as well, which is definitely worth signing up for too. That sounds like a wrestler name, by the way. The Great Piper. The Great Piper. Mm-hmm. It is good. Wait, well, are you thinking of Rowdy Roddy Piper? Yes. From back in the day? Yes. I, so that was my era. I know. Well, I, I know <laughs> Rowdy Roddy Piper. So, I mean, I remember young, back when it was WWF. WWF is what it, I yeah. watched. And by the way, just to, a real quick correction, it's not just that we don't take any corporate ad money. We don't take any ad money. Period. None. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're never going to do guys. that. It is, yes, 100% funded through the audience. We're very proud of that. Even when we upload stuff on YouTube, Every single video that is from Crystal Kylan Friends, the monetization gets taken off of it. We click the monetization yeah. off of it because we're serious about not taking any ad money for this. This is an ad-free space in every way, shape, and form. So if you uh, guys support that and you appreciate it, um, $5 a month on Substack, and it would help a lot. And we really love you. Thank you. Love you guys. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. Bye.